Are you looking to build a career in data science? Have you wondered what are the skills you need to succeed in this domain? Stay tuned as we dive deeper into this subject. Welcome to the Zista podcast, where we invite industry professionals and academicians to answer queries that students have within a specific subject. Joining us today is Dabal Thanki, a person with over 18 years of experience in digital, analytics, tech, and the SaaS domain. He's worked with fantastic companies like Wipro, CNBC, Directions, and Cartesian Consulting. Dabal even went on to found his own startups, Capmob and Qantas, and he's currently the executive vice president at Loginext, the world's leading automation SaaS platform. Without further ado, let's go straight into the session. Welcome back to the Zista podcast, Dawal. I'm so happy that you've made time on a weekend to join us here today. Pleasure being here, Amit. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is ours. Let me start by asking you, you've had over 18 years of experience in data, digital and data sciences. So what really is the most rewarding part about being in this industry? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it just feels like yesterday when I started my career, right? Time is relative. I mean, yeah, 18 years, right? Uh, I look good for my age, but it's been phenomenal, you know, in one word, because uh, I was lucky enough to see the whole evolution of the data landscape in India and globally. And you can't go away from the fact that we live in a data-driven age, right? I, I say this every time I'm speaking about data, but it's so important to really uh, recognize that, that the amount of data we generated from the beginning of time till 2004 is the amount of data that we're generating every 48 hours now. That's what Eric Schmidt, the ex-CEO of Google, had said in 2004. It just puts the whole story into perspective, right? Because there is just so much data, right? My journey particularly uh, has been very interesting for two reasons. One is I've been able to always be in the industry that's in a rapid growth pace, okay? Uh, whether it was digital in uh, 2008 to 2012 when, you know, digital marketing was beginning to become the, the next big thing. You know, you had the iPhone, uh, you know, becoming uh, the, the big driver of the mobile revolution, the smartphone revolution. And then you had the app stores and then you had uh, Google uh, coming into its own with all its advertising uh, opportunities for marketeers. And then you had the, the rise of the social media giants like Facebook and LinkedIn and all of that. So, I think that was the time when digital was really exploding. It was really showing the world that this is the next big thing. And luckily at that point in time, I um, I used to, I was an entrepreneur back then and I used to run my own digital marketing fund. So we were lucky to be at the right place at the right time, uh, especially when there was so much interesting development happening on the overall digital landscape. So I got to learn a lot about uh, digital early enough. In fact, we were one of the few uh, digital marketing agencies which had a credit line from Google, you know, where we wow. run campaigns for our customers and Google would bill us at the end of the credit period and so on. And that was because Google wanted to evangelize the whole digital advertising opportunity. Right. Because again, back in 2008, 2010, 
digital was probably just five percent to ten percent of your overall marketing spends. You know, your 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 bulk of your marketing was still going into television and conventional media, outdoor, radio, print, all of that. Right, and uh, rightfully so because those were the more mature channels, well established in reach, in impact, and so on and so forth. But digital was this new kid on the block. Uh, with a lot of promise and a lot of uh, creative freedom to to tell your story in a much richer, more engaging manner. But uh, the digital revolution came with its own challenges of uh, adoption, right? Because you had these old ways or old school ways of marketing, of customer acquisition, of customer engagement, which now needed to undergo a huge transformation to make it digital driven, right? And, and that's where a lot of large and small organizations started moving on uh, in in this you know moving forward in this journey of becoming uh, digitally driven, and then eventually you saw the rise of digital first organizations. Absolutely, you know where you started uh, going digital first in 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 your go to market, in your customer engagement, in in every aspect of your business. And I was lucky enough to 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 have a, uh, a front row seat at this uh, massive revolution because of the 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 digital business that uh, that we were running at that time. And we were lucky enough to work with some really large organizations back in the day where we could help them in their digital marketing initiatives. We could we literally had uh, amazing conversations around uh, why is search engine marketing the next big thing and why should they uh, channelize at least 10 to 15% of their marketing budget from the current 3 to 4% into search engine marketing because it gives you much better cost of acquisition, right? Your customer acquisition costs are much lower when you acquire them through digital channels, particularly search engine marketing, as opposed to acquiring them through non-digital channels like television, print, outdoor, etc. And those conversations were beautiful because they more often than not ended in uh, a positive outcome. You know, most, and, and we were lucky again because, you know, it's back in the day, you know, to get meetings with CEOs of large organizations was not as easy as it is now because now, though, as I said, the world is more democratic. Uh, but, but back in the day, we could get the attention of the CXOs. You know, uh, we, could, we could get meetings with the CXOs, uh, the CEOs, because this was the new thing and the CEOs wanted to understand it better. They wanted to know how they can, you know, look at digital as a, as a, primary component of their go-to-market or their overall business strategy. And because the the revenue benefits, the ROI benefits of, of digital were humongous, you know, were an order of magnitude better than what you got with uh, non-digital media, it it got their attention and it got, got us the meetings that we needed, it got us the conversations that we needed, and that's where we were able to grow our digital business quite uh, efficiently back in the day. And it was a huge win-win because the clients benefited from it tremendously as well. I have personally seen uh, digital budgets going from 5% or 3% or 4% to 15% to 20% to 40%. You know, I have, there have been situations where we were involved in some meetings where uh, the CXOs decided to stop using the brand ambassador who used to be a Bollywood celebrity and they said, hey, we're spending too much money on this brand endorsement and the TV ads. Let's put that money in uh, digital customer acquisition because we have an order of magnitude lower customer acquisition cost with digital. And those used to be very, very humbling, fulfilling, and empowering, where you're able to drive a change in mindset. You're able to drive a change in the way uh, businesses run, right? In, in whatever little way that you could, right? And, and that's, that's, that was one of the, the great experiences that I had in my career, uh, starting off with the whole digital 
um, journey, right? Because before that, I used to work with uh, a, a firm called Directions, and they were into uh, CRM and data-driven data marketing. Again, one of the pioneers in the space. They were the first ones to launch some of the very popular loyalty programs that we okay. that we see around today. So I think the foundation of data-driven thinking, data-driven decision-making, data-driven strategies, data-driven marketing uh, came very early to me, you know, uh, as, a, uh, as a consequence of, you know, uh, working with directions and working with some of the big brands on their loyalty programs and, and so on, right? Uh, and, and, and that set the foundation in me for, for really uh, being in the industry that was, you know, that was, that was an uptrending industry. And that's that's one thing that I learned early enough in my career, I would say, and I was lucky to to have that epiphany or that clarity early enough that I always want to be in the industry that is in the uptrend zone, that is in the upswing, you know, industry which is driving the world forward, industry that is creating the maximum impact on the world out there. And in the early, you know, in, in the 2008 to 2012, 2013 era, that was digital, you know, specifically digital marketing and data-driven marketing. And I was lucky enough to be there and, and, and contribute in my own way. From 2014, 13, 14 onwards to 2017, 18, it was really the rise of uh, product-driven businesses, you know, where you saw a lot of SaaS businesses, product businesses, subscription businesses, software as a service kind of a revolution that was sort of beginning to unfold. And I was lucky enough to, again, in my own uh, entrepreneurial way, you know, bring a few products to the market and, and work on some very interesting concepts with some very interesting people. Uh, that taught me a lot as well. So that early exposure to SaaS and subscription-driven businesses was, was very important because today as we speak, um, there is this popular saying, right? SaaS is eating the world, you know? And, and if you see most successful businesses, the, the whole Satya Nadella story of the turnaround of Microsoft is driven by his passion for subscription business. You know, this whole thing about uh, office as a service and, you know, the cloud business of Microsoft, the whole Azure business, all of that is driven by SaaS. These are SaaS businesses, these are subscription businesses. And that's where this whole revolution of subscription business was really become, becoming stronger. And I was lucky enough to be a part of that revolution back then, as I am uh, right now as well. But what is interesting is from that transition, uh, then I moved on to Cartesian Consulting, which is an amazing firm, some really brilliant minds uh, doing some really great work on AI, machine learning, and uh, algorithms that help you drive one-on-one -on -one personalized engagements with your customers, right? And that was, again, the beginning of this massive disruption in marketing automation, in, in tech automation, in consumer process automation, and so on, driven by AI and, uh, and machine learning and, and data science, right? So I could spend some good years with uh, Cartesian, you know, uh, really contributing in, in various ways towards leveraging, you know, the cutting edge AI data science and, and AI ML-based approaches, uh, again, via the product route, you know, this whole SaaS-based um, offering. So I, in, in some sense, I was you know, very lucky to be able to compound my experience over the years and taking with me what I learned in my previous experience into my next experience and then taking that game to the next level. So that essentially helped me make, you know, the, the sum greater than the total of the parts. So when I moved from digital to products, I took on my digital knowledge into products. And when I moved from products to analytics and data science, I took all my product and SaaS knowledge into analytics and data science. 
And from analytics and data science, when I now move into a logistics uh, automation platform, which is Loginx, which is the world's largest uh, logistics automation platform, I bring in all of these years of analytics, data science, machine learning, uh, digital uh, engagement, SaaS, product-driven in experience and, and knowledge into my current role that allows me to really unleash a lot of creativity, a lot of uh, art, a lot of science, a lot of left brain, a lot of right brain into uh, driving a logistics automation platform globally, right? So I've had a phenomenal journey. I mean, it, it did end up being a little longer than I expected the whole uh, journey description, but I guess uh, I, I can talk about it for days at end because um, I've really cherished every moment of it. I, I've seen great highs, I've seen great lows, I've seen some really solid uh, inventions happen, uh, some, some really solid market disruptions, some very good go-to-market learnings, and then eventually, as a result of all of that, I'm able to uh, you know, sort of enjoy my job right now, uh, where I get to bring in a combination of all of this into, into what I do currently. So yeah, that's, that's, that's my journey in digital. It's, it's so nice to hear you talk through your, uh, <clears throat> your career and your journey, because it is really quite clear to me that you, in many cases, you are the right place at the right time. Yeah. As individuals, we are the sum total of our experiences. And there's this lovely phrase by uh, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson when he said that the mind, once expanded by a new idea, can never regain its origin, shape, or form. Yeah. And in your perspective, how the way your individual personality and your outlook has been morphed with these different experiences have shaped you to be the successful career person that you are today. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't, again, I don't use these terms like success and failure. I really believe in the fact that if you are able to enjoy doing what you do, right, that's the best thing. You know, if you're able to constantly grow, if you're able to constantly upgrade your skill sets, your mindset, your, your ability to deal with the world at large, I think you're in a good spot, right? And, and that's a very virtuous circle where you contribute as much to the world at large as much as the world contributes uh, into you as an individual or as a professional, right? So you, there is mutual value creation. You enjoy doing what you do. You enjoy waking up every day and going out there and, and creating some phenomenal value. And I think that's, that's the state that I, I cherish being in. So I, I guess that's the end game uh, for me. <laughs> And being well, in the flow, being in the flow, enjoying what you do, really, you know, creating value and enjoying every minute of your wakeful existence. I think that's really uh, very, very important. And it's important to get to that state, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and then revel in it and make the most of it and, and, and keep moving forward. I think that's, that's something right. that you're doing. Okay. So I wanted to ask you, um, Data science is actually impacting multiple industries. So whether it's health, whether it's education, whether it's medicine, whether it's business, or for that matter, even social media, yeah. its impact is fairly pervasive. But what do you see as, you know, how, how do you see this moving forward? You know, do you think uh, more businesses, which may not be as data-driven, will adopt data sciences and data analytics? Or, or do you think there will continue to be some forward-thinking businesses versus some which are not? I think it's only a matter of time uh, before uh, every business becomes a data business. In fact, it's already happening as we say, right? right? Uh, today, every company is a tech company. There is no such thing called as a non, you know, even a bank, for example, right? A bank is a tech company. It's no longer a financial company which can exist without data or without tech, right? 
um, every company is a data company. Like again, Elon Musk in uh, in one of his conversations said, "Tesla is not a car company; it's a data company. The amount of data a Tesla car captures during its trip is humongous, and that data goes back into the car to make the car more intelligent. That's where you have features like autopilot, and you have features where the car can navigate itself." You have self-driving cars coming up. You have safer cars coming up. You have more energy-efficient cars coming up. That's a result of a constant evolutionary process driven by data. So every company is a data company, and sooner or later, everyone will realize the potential of this, right? Because again, it's it's a double-edged sword. Because data is 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 a great thing, and it's also a very dangerous thing, right? Because Today, all smartphones, right? They, they they listen to everything you say, right? How do you, how how does a iPhone wake up when you say "Hey Siri," or how does a Android phone wake up when you say "Hey Google"? Because it's listening to you all the time. That's when it is able to make uh, figure out when you said the magic word. Sure. Right. So there is a lot of data that's out there, and there's a lot of data that's being taken into the cloud and that's being you know utilized for better customer experiences. Sure. But that is a phenomenal double-edged sword. You know, today you could there are scenarios that we list, you know hear about where the data is getting misused, and there are you know data-driven crimes, and there are all kinds of wrong uses of data that 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 keep happening. And that's because uh, with great power comes great responsibility. Correct. That famous saying from Spider-Man. Spider-Man, exactly. So if you don't uh, use data well, or if your heart is not in the right place as an organization who is dealing with lots of customer data. Then you may end up doing not so great things with it. So that that's where this whole aspect of driving responsibility in large organizations is very very important, right? And having the right leaders, having the right uh, leadership teams who take the right decisions in the interest of the organization, in the interest of the consumer, and in the interest of humanity at large, right? Which is why it's in our hands to decide whether data becomes the next best thing that evolves humanity. Or does it become a source of destruction in some way, right? Because we hear theories about AI, you know, AI can be good, AI can be bad. You all think about things like the Terminator and 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 God knows what all where robots will kind of eventually conspire and turn against the humans, and then that'll be the end of human civilization. There are all kinds of conspiracy theories around AI. There are obviously two schools of thoughts and two very very well defined camps of people who believe that AI can do a lot of good. And people believe that AI can be destructive, but I would say it's just a tool, right? I mean, a knife—you can use a knife to chop vegetables, or you can use a knife to stab somebody, right? It's not really the knife; it's the one who's wielding the knife, right? How do you use it? So, as long as the people who use AI, as long as people who create AI, they have their heart in the right place, you're going to have very, very interesting use cases and a lot of beneficial stuff that AI is going to contribute to. But if these people who are wielding AI and wielding the power don't really use it in the right way, then it's it's capable. quite the opposite. Can happen to do a lot of damage as well. So I think it's up to us as a species to to decide how we use these tools and how we make them uh, our allies and how we uh, grow together instead of uh, you know uh, letting these tools become weapons of destruction in in some way shape or form so i think it's down to us in terms of how we use it but otherwise i think uh, every company will eventually find ways to use data in the right way uh, they are using it in the right way uh, already in many ways and uh, sooner or later i don't see there will be any business on the planet which will choose to not be a data business but again 
a small caveat there is when we say a data driven business doesn't necessarily mean that you are capturing a lot of data like apple doesn't capture a lot of customer data at all right but it does capture a lot of data which is required for its devices or its ai to function right for siri to function or for apple uh, home to function and so on you need to consume a lot of data which makes those devices better but then what kind of encryption are you using what kind of data stays on your phone versus what kind of data goes back into the cloud is a decision that apple is making every time in the interest of their customers you keep the customer at the center of everything you will take the right decisions as far as data is concerned if you keep your business interests at the center of everything then sure. sometimes you may end up taking decisions which favor your business but may not favor your customers and i think that's the 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 two different areas that businesses have to be careful about that you should always have the customer at the center of the data story rather than the business because if you do things right on the customer and sometimes even at the cost of short term uh negative business impact if i could call it that it's still okay because it'll only create longer term better value because eventually the customers will value what you're doing and that will result in increased revenues and you will be able to create a net positive impact over a period of time in a much better way rather than uh, making those wrong choices of you know prioritizing business over prioritizing the customers interests so i think that's that's important to keep in mind as long as we keep that in mind i guess every business will become a data business they'll flourish because the more you know about the customer the better your customer the better customer experience you can deliver to them the you can make the customer's life a lot easier if if you have a lot of understanding about about them and i think as long as you do all of the right things like using data to make the customer's life easier so that that improvement in customer experience eventually translates into more business for you and then it sets up a virtuous circle where you do the right things for the customer and customer does the right things for you and the business wins the customer wins and data becomes the catalyst of that win win and that's that's the way every business will be eventually or I, i like that concept of a win win but when i was hearing you speak uh in gave rise to two thoughts in my mind one is there's a fine balance that brands and companies need to tread between uh privacy and you know data you know personalization using data to personalize curate really uh you know unique experiences for customers and the second was i think overall in the world that we live in today there's a lot of data consciousness as in organizations have become data aware and data conscious it's not that interactions weren't happening it's not that you know aspects were not happening in your business but now things are being quantified captured every interaction is is a potential data point those data points can go back into uh, an ai model that ai model can then start generating some yeah. uh, graphical dashboards which enable smarter more efficient decision making so um what what do you think uh, companies will uh, be able to do this balancing act between personalization and privacy again uh, that's where you do what is right okay because again when you say privacy right uh, as an organization you know ties back to my earlier point about keeping the customer at the center of the story sure right as an organization if you really value customer privacy you are going to take some hard decisions around your data processes which protect your customers interests a simple example that i give you is every time you you know you you use a app or a website there is that long verbose Terms, terms and conditions, conditions right. document that has endless terms in it. You keep scrolling. Most of us never really read what's in there. You just say I accept and move forward because there's no way for you to move forward unless you accept it, right? right. 
Now that's one area that you can, you know, just to quote an example, that's one area where organizations can show their customer intent more clearly and more responsibly by just translating that into a simple five bullet point or a four bullet point customer agreement where you say, hey, I'm going to capture your data. I'm going to use it for one, two, three reasons. And should you not want me to use this data at any point in time, here's your way to opt out. As simple as that. You convert that entire gobbledygook into a very crisp four or five pointer user agreement, which the user is able to understand. That shows that you are really acting responsibly and you want your users to know what terms the user is signing up for. If I have a clean conscience as a business, sure. I would want to do that. Right. I want my users to know what am I going to do with the data? What are the terms he's signing up for? And the user will respect that. Right? They will respect that if you told me what you're going to do with my data, you told me what are the terms that I need to understand before I sign up. And the user will reward you back with long-term loyalty. You know, brands are built over user customer loyalty and customer love. Brands are not built over marketing strategies or deals or discounts. You have to win the trust of the customer. You have to win the respect of the customer. You have to win the customer's loyalty. And the customer will surprise you with the kind of value he or she can create for your business. And that starts with you doing the right things and having the courage to do the right things. Be clear about it. Again, to quote Steve Jobs here, Apple takes privacy more seriously, in, in my opinion as well, whatever I read and, um, and see around me. Apple takes privacy more seriously than any other big business in the world today, right? They're very clear about what they're going to do with your data. They're very clear about what data is stored locally on your phone versus what goes into the cloud. They're very clear about um, their data policies and they're very clear about communicating that to their customers as well. Every time you use a third-party app, they put up a panel on the phone saying, hey, this app is going to consume this and this data. Are you okay? And then you say, okay, I'm okay to share location data with this app. Okay, fine. And then it moves forward. So they take those hard decisions because sometimes you may end up uh, losing a lot of uh, customers or a lot of advertiser revenue because you are becoming very, very protective about customer data. And, and, and you're okay to take that hit because you know you're doing the right thing. And eventually, like I said, the customers will reward you by subscribing to your services. It's okay if I don't get something for free, I'm okay to pay for it as long as I'm not trading in more than what I think I'm trading in, right? Sure. Because there is no such thing called as a free lunch. Today, there is no app or service that is truly free as they, legend as they, as they very uh, popularly say that if you are getting something for free, you are the one that is being sold. <laughs> you know, when you say you are, you're getting Google, for free. You can use Google for free, but Google is monetizing you by selling you to the advertiser, right? The advertiser can reach you through Google. Of course, it's a, uh, you know, a metaphorical reference, but in some sense, you are not getting to use Google for free. You're getting to use Google at a cost. And what is that cost? The advertiser has access to you. Now, if Google acts responsibly about this, there's nothing wrong in this arrangement, by the way. I'm okay to see some ads from relevant advertisers as long as I'm getting value in terms of the service that Google is offering me. And the ads becoming relevant also becomes a value add, right? Like you, you're looking at buying something in the market. Let's say you're in the market to buy a smartphone and Google shows you ads about smartphones you're interested in. That is no longer an ad, it's content. You want to see what that is because it's so contextual and relevant. So Google is solving for this free lunch problem by actually creating value for you, even in the whole advertising process. And that's the right way to go about it, right? So you, again, if you keep the customer at the center, 
of this whole data-driven business paradigm, you will end up taking the right decisions. And those right decisions need not always be easy, but they'll always be the right things to do from a long-term impact perspective. Thank you for that really clear commentary on uh, the point that we asked you. And Double, we'd also like to ask you a little bit about uh, what are some of the skills and competencies that you know aspiring data scientists or data analytics students need to succeed? Sure, again, very useful question. And I think there is this one thing that, again, I, I keep talking about every time I, I uh, you know talk about this skill set part. And it's very important to bring both your right brain and your left brain into play in your role in any data-driven domain. You could be a data scientist, you can be an analyst, you could be a data engineer, you could be a chief data science officer, you could be sure. anyone in that whole stack, or for that matter, you could be anyone in the organization today because by the virtue of this logic where I said every company is a data company, every professional today is a data professional. You say that, okay, I'm a creative person, you know, I'm, a, I'm an art director, okay, I, I, I design things, right, or I'm a designer. <laughs> You're still a data person. Because today, everything you do has a data impact. You know, whether I choose design option A or design option B or design option C, you run an A-B test to figure out what works better. Sure. Whether blue is better than green is better than red, you do an A-B test, you see the user behavior on those three options and you see, okay, users seem to be liking green over uh, red. So then I'd probably use green in a certain context or users seem to be right, liking red over green in a certain context. So I'd end up using red, red, right? So it entirely depends on how data literate you are, no matter what your area of expertise is. And if you're not data literate, you're missing out. So again, it doesn't just apply to data professionals, it applies to everyone. You need to be data literate, you need to know how data impacts your work, you need to know how you can measure and quantify your work and how you can present your work better because that's when you'll be able to uh, grow in, your, in, in, in the kind of work that you're doing and, and grow in your career as a professional as well. So very important to consider this first fact that every professional is a data professional. And the second aspect is, so therefore, what are the necessary skills to be a good data professional? Now, if I'm a database engineer or I'm a, a data scientist and I'm building models, of course, my data is, my, my, my job is a core data job. So I obviously need to be a lot more data literate than a digital marketing manager who just needs to know a little bit about data that helps him or her do their job well, right? So the intensity of your data literacy could vary depending on what your roles are but you still need to be above a base cutoff in your data literacy to be able to leverage uh, data in any domain that you're in. That's gonna be a critical success factor in whatever it is that you're doing. So that's point number one. Point number two is you have to really be very creative, okay? Today, as a data scientist, you don't just need programming skills. You don't just need coding skills. Today, all code is available on the internet. Most of the applications are open source. You have GitHub, which is a global repository of all the code. So technically, if you want to build a model today, you have all the code that you need on the internet available for free for you to build a model and run with it. You can take out any code base from the internet, customize it, add your variables, modify the code, make it your own, and run with it, right? So, so technology per se is no longer you know, some sort of a knowledge advantage. It's parity. What really is a knowledge advantage is your ability to use that knowledge, is your ability to solve problems, is your ability to think creatively, which is what ties back into my earlier point about left brain and right brain. You have to bring your right brain into play as well. You can't say that, hey, I'm, like I said earlier, you can't say that, hey, I'm a creative guy, I have nothing to do with data. It applies vice versa as well. You can't say I'm a data guy, I have nothing to do with creativity. No. Even if you are an engineer, you will be a better engineer if you are creative. 
if you have better problem solving skills if you have better understanding of how to deal with a certain situation and that requires you to be creative that requires you to think out of the box that requires you to challenge assumptions that requires you to rearrange patterns in different ways to create dramatic value otherwise you're just going to be at the same level as everyone else or you're just going to be incrementally better you put five data scientists in a room give them a data problem they'll all probably build the same kind of models which will only be different from each other by a certain level of accuracy of its output that's it someone will be at let's say 80% accuracy someone will be at 82% accuracy someone will be at 78% accuracy right because they're all using the same tools the same techniques and the same approaches right because it's all analytical to solve the problem differently to break new ground to really bring about a tectonic shift in value to be more effective rather than being efficient you have to start asking questions that no one else is asking you have to start looking for answers that no one else is looking for now this doesn't mean that you have to do that for the sake of being different you have to do that because that's the only way you can be effective rather than efficient and when you become effective you can solve a problem that would ideally take one year to solve and say 3 hours because you came up with an idea which was way more radically different than what the conventional thinking around that subject was and if you can bring that quality in everyday work if you can bring that ability to think creatively think analytically wear those different hats you know there is this beautiful book that edward de bono wrote about six thinking hats you know, look at every problem from six different perspectives and so on just to draw a little uh, element from there it's important to look at the problem from these different perspectives it's important to have the analytical hat on at times it's important to have the creative hat on at times it's important to have the design thinking hat on at some points in time it's important to have the execution hat on at some points in time and a confluence of all of that makes you a better professional in the data field uh, in terms of the kind of impact you can create right and at the end of the day it's really about uh, how you can keep getting better at right and it, and this is again a democratic opportunity everyone can get better at it it's not some people are inherently creative some people are not inherently creative if you're not inherently creative you can work towards becoming creative because there is enough knowledge enough data enough content out there that can inspire you to to really become better at anything that you want to become better at today so i think that's really how i would want to look at it uh, from a, a data science skill set perspective and what people should do to get better at uh, and and at uh, the data skills that is such a, a nice perspective that you brought to the table about data literacy and that uh, now that we live in a data driven world that element of data literacy is required by people across functions and across levels and the intensity of that data literacy uh, you know may vary so that was a really interesting thing that you highlighted double thanks for doing that just want to chime in again with one quick point in that sure, context sure. right from a data skill set perspective something which is not uh, again emphasized enough is this ability to be a good storyteller using data right you can be good with data but if you are not able to build stories using data then you're not bringing your data knowledge to the level of impact that it's potentially capable of right and that's another skill that people should really get better at like how do you tell great stories using data right because at the end of the day all great leaders whether in business or in politics or in any realm of human existence have been great storytellers everybody who's really made an impact uh, on the on the cosmic scale of human evolution has been a great storyteller and in the data age 
how do you take your storytelling game to the next level by leveraging data to become effective storytellers? And I think that could really be a winning edge. So thank you for highlighting that, yeah. that element of storytelling. The, uh, so we keep talking about the art and science of data and, and I think the storytelling element would fit into the art domain. Yes. And it's so important because you look at a piece of data, it clearly shows something, but for you to communicate that in a way that someone whose data literacy might be a little lower yeah. can understand. Yes. That storytelling element is so important. Yeah, because story is the programming language of humans. <laughs> if one has to put it that way, right? Sure. Data is the programming language of machines. Algorithms are programming languages of machines. But story is the programming language of humans, right? Because humans essentially respond to emotions. Right. And if, the if you can convert data into an emotion through a story, then you're going to be able to achieve the right impact that you want to achieve in, in any small or big context. Right. And that's really uh, crucial that we appreciate that and you know, get better at that. I wanted to ask you, and maybe I'm kind of going back in time. In the year 2020, you had, uh, you know, you were at IIM Ranchi and you were delivering a talk to students there. And uh, in your deck, you had uh, a slide which said something like, data makes marketing disappear. So could you elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, that's a good one that you've uh, picked up because uh, I strongly feel that if you're able to, you know, let me quote another, you know, uh, uh, influential personality in this context to, you know, uh, explain this point better. And uh, that's Johnny I, right, who was the chief design officer of uh, Apple. is a person instrumental behind setting the, the foundations of the design language of Apple that we now see in all their products. He was a designer of the iPhone, the Mac, the Apple Watch, and all of that. And essentially, somebody who uh, Steve Jobs really trusted from a uh, design language perspective. He's the guy who's, who's probably pay, played a, a big role in making Apple a really cool brand, right? And, and bringing a certain level of design aesthetic into every Apple product that we see today. Of course, in combination with Steve Jobs and his, his, his taste for good design and, and, and his understanding of aesthetics and so on. And I think Steve Jobs and Johnny, I, one of the two actually said this thing uh, in, in one of the keynotes. And, and they said that, uh, technology is at its best when it disappears. <laughs> like when you're using a phone, you know that this is you and this is the phone, right? You're you're interacting with a with a slab of glass and you are you're you know kind of having a conversation with the phone. You're interacting with the phone, but you're very conscious of the fact that where do you end and the phone starts, right? So there is a difference, and this is you and this is the phone. The design or the technology of that device should mature to such an extent where the divide between you and the device disappears. It becomes one continuous flow and one continuous process. And that's the beauty of that, in fact, also the gravity of that statement that how can you make technology so, so refined that it actually disappears? Like there is no difference between you and the device. You know, it's so intuitive. It, it understands you so well. It really preempts your woes. It makes it very easy and efficient to, to, to deal with it, right? And that's, that's a profound statement. And if that's your North Star statement, you're constantly working towards make technology disappear, that is the true way of evolving rapidly on, on, on the tech dimension in, in your product development, product development process. And I take that same story into marketing, right? When I 
try to sell my product, you know, as a consumer product or as a B2B product, as a software product or as a, as a, as a hardware product or whatever it is that you're selling, wherever there is marketing involved, the product has to become so, so, so amazingly naturally blended into the customer's requirements that the product sells itself, you know, where again, the, the classic reinvented four P's of marketing are like product, 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 where you build the product to be so good that you really don't need marketing to sell it. And that can be done through data, right? When you have the right data in place about what your custom, customer wants and what your product has to offer or what your service has to offer, you bridge the gap between the customer and the service through your understanding of data in such a manner that you don't really need marketing and it doesn't feel like marketing. If you look at an ad again on Google, when you're searching for something and you see an ad and you, look, you, you want to buy a phone, and you see the exact same ad for the phone that you're interested in buying, that ad is not marketing. That ad is content, right? You will click on it. You're not distracted by it. You are not seeing it as a nuisance. You want to watch that ad because that ad is talking about something that you are interested in. Sure. And that was made possible because that advertiser knows that you are looking for something that they have to sell. And what they're selling is so intuitively matching with your expectations and requirements that you don't feel that the brand is trying to sell something to you. You just feel that you're having a conversation with the brand and a conversation which is benefiting you in helping you take a decision. And that's where marketing is non-existent. It doesn't feel like I'm marketing the product to you. It just feels like you're having a conversation with me and that helps you take a decision. And that's where marketing actually disappears. When it, all of that is being enabled by, by data. the data. All of that is, is being right. enabled by the data. And right. marketing it is at its efficient best. It's so refined because of all the data that's powering it, because of the data that tells me what the customer requirements are, because of the data that tells me what features are going to work for this customer in this product, because of the data that tells me that this is the best way I can build a product story that resonates with the customer. Because of all of that, the marketing is so refined that it always feels non-existent. The match is so, so resonating between the product and the consumer that the marketing, even though marketing is enabling it, it is so refined because of data that it, it feels like it, it doesn't exist. And that should be the benchmark for all marketing. Like how can you make marketing disappear so that the relationship between the product and the consumer is seamless and it doesn't seem like you're trying to market something or you're trying to sell something or you're trying to enable something. That's the same story for technology as much as for marketing. Because I'll say I'm tech enabling you. That itself brings a certain layer of complexity in it. Let that complexity get so refined that it almost disappears. And when we say something that is so refined, it takes a lot of hard work to make a complex thing simple, right? Therefore, it takes a lot of hard work to make marketing disappear. And data can help you do that. And that's why, you know, the, the line that data makes marketing disappear. Amazing, amazing. And I, I love the way you explained that. Mm. Uh, I wanted to thank you for making time to be here on a weekend. We really enjoyed interacting with you, Double. And um, I think we've uncovered some fantastic ground. We made some great progress. So it's been a really nice, engaging conversation. Uh, absolutely. I enjoyed having this conversation as well. Thanks for having me, Amit. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this session. I think Double did a great job in covering what students really need to look at to succeed as data scientists and data-driven professionals. What really stuck with me is that data literacy is something that is required by people across levels and domains. And that's something which is an important takeaway from this episode. 
subscribe to our channel on youtube to get more content like this and follow us on apple podcast google podcast and spotify our handle is the zista podcast till we meet again we'd say stay curious